You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Welcome back to the Heartland Politics Show and Podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Quad Cities NPR. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. I'm your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today has written a book that zeroes in on one of the major challenges facing our country today. It's the decline in trust we have as citizens of this nation and our leaders and institutions. It's not just government that is viewed as untrustworthy, but big business, media, tech, medicine, I'd call it a crisis of leadership. And it's been going on for a little while here. My guest is Gerard Baker. He's currently editor at large of the Wall Street Journal. He served as editor in chief of the journal from 2013 to 2018. He writes the free expression column in the journal on Tuesdays. It's must read for me anyway. And I, I think if you read it, you would feel the same way. He hosts a podcast of the same name as well that I listen to, uh, and the book Jerry's authored is called American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How Can We, we, we Rebuild Confidence. It's a book that describes the problem but also has some solutions as well. And I can assure you that he doesn't take partisan sides in this book, uh, and, and I think that's what makes it very, very interesting and valuable. Jerry, thank you so much for taking the time today. Robin, thanks for having me. So, uh, when did this start? I mean, we 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 tend to think uh, we, we, maybe Americans have always uh, maybe not trusted their government leaders or all. But when, where do you zero in on when this started, and was there an event or events that keyed it? Yeah, well, thanks, Robin, and again, thanks for those very kind words about the book. Um, yeah, it's you're absolutely right. In fact, I I, I make a point in in uh, the book in one of the chapters of saying that mistrust. Uh, of government particularly, uh, but of leaders of institutions has been a kind of an American virtue. Let's be honest about it. I mean, America was founded uh, because of mistrust of uh, a faraway, you know, overpowerful, overweening government. Um, and indeed, the constitution that the founding fathers created was essentially, if you like, predicated on the expectation that people wouldn't and shouldn't trust leaders. That's why it had all these extraordinarily and brilliant uh, complex arrangements of checks and balances and everything else, because we didn't trust people who got too powerful. So, yeah, so you're absolutely right. So there's always been a strong element of mistrust, and it's, and it's ebbed and flowed uh, throughout American history. I think this period we're talking about, and I, I'm looking at the period of the last 30 or 40 years or so, really, the last generation, I, I think that I think this... And I, just just going purely on the data, and I use a lot of data in the book, data from um, Gallup and other polling organizations, which ask people, ask Americans, ask American people whether they trust their institute, how much trust they have in all of these institutions, these individual institutions. The decline really began, Robin, around about, I mean, it, it varies from institution to institution, but overall it began 
around about the turn of the century, around about 25 years or so ago in the late 90s, uh, around about uh, two, late 90s, 2000. That's when you saw, you know, generally speaking, I say, so so Gallup in particular polls people on uh, a level of trust in 16 or 17 institutions. Over the last 30 years or so, since the 1990s, um, the level of trust overall has declined, has fallen by about half. It's gone from about 50% of people on average saying they trust institutions to about 25%. But and for, for I think... 15 out of these 17 institutions, all but two of these institutions have seen dramatic declines in trust over that period, over that last 25 to 30 years. So, you know, so that's the time frame we're talking about. Why did it come about then? Well, you know, some, we, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, in the course of this conversation. But but I think I think that it's no accident that that probably coincided um, with a number of things that have been going on in America. I think one, um, the, and, uh, the, the overwhelming most important thing is I think that these institutions really beginning in the 80s and 90s were seized by were captured by a kind of a progressive elite um that had very different values and um ideals to what most Americans had where it was the media uh, universities um you know a, a large parts of of the the sort of scientific and, and and even medical profession big business big technology and i think that was so i think that's the period what that's the period i've looked at it's the period we're talking about uh that it be, and it began roughly began and it's been continuing since uh, since about the 1990s yeah you you throw partisan darts both ways in this book and, and one of the major events you cite is the iraq war uh, is, is is contributing to that i want to kind of start there uh because it seems like our country after 9 11 was united there was a unique opportunity there and it's looking back it seems like we blew it and i'm not just i'm not going to put all this on george w bush and you don't either but that iraq war seemed like a seminal moment what you're describing here Yes, exactly. I, look, again, I think that was a seminal moment for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, if we're talking about trust, it really, really did undermine trust. The government came to us, said, you know, we need to, uh, you know, we need to remove Saddam Hussein. We need to take military action to remove Saddam Hussein because he had weapons of mass destruction. There was also the claim that he was, you know, very, very dubious claim that he was associated with Al Qaeda and it somehow had something to do with 9/11. Though that was never proven. There was more confidence, supposedly, in the claim that he had weapons of mass destruction. We went to war there. Four thousand Americans died. Um, many were injured. Tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died. All kinds of all kinds of cost, financial, human, um, political cost uh, for the United States, in pursuit of a war that, in the end, was not the the premise for which was not was not found to be justified. So it's no wonder that people stopped trusting their government. They stopped large numbers of people stopped trusting their government when you know this this the, the most serious thing a government can do is take a country to war and to take the war to take a country to war on a false premise. And by the way, I'm not saying Bush lied. I think they genuinely believe there were weapons of mass destruction, but there weren't. And that caused a tremendous loss of trust. I think the other way in which the other important way in which the uh, the Iraq war undermined trust was it undermined faith in the competence of government. I mean, this was not just that, you know, we were misled. Um, again, I think as it happens, genuinely misled, not lied to, but it's not just that we were misled and that that we could, couldn't really trust what our government was telling us about the case for war. It was also that the war was conducted incredibly clumsily and badly. Uh, you know, we were told before the war, you know, we were going to go in and Americans would be greeted with sweets and flowers, that everything would be great. It would be, you know, democracy, Jeffersonian democracy would spring up overnight in Iraq. And we went in there, we blundered, we made terrible mistakes. Again, we lost huge numbers of uh, American lives and allied lives. Um, and it was a 
seminal moment in terms of demonstrating that our government wasn't capable of doing what it claimed it needed to do. So I think those two things were a really, really big factor, yeah, in in, in undermining trust in, in the government in particular. One issue that, that, that my show zeroed in on consistently over the years has been the issue of globalization and how our region in particular in the manufacturing industry has been hit really hard. And I think you could draw a direct line between that and the election of Donald Trump here in the Midwest. Um, he spoke to those people, but but you bring up globalization as another example of an issue where the elites were not lined up well with the average person in this country. And we were, a lot of people were told basically go get a college degree or move where the jobs are. Um, and, and this issue, which also plays not only with trade, but with immigration is another one. I think that you, you were spot on in, in, in raising in this book on the lack of, leading to the lack of trust. Yeah, thank you again for saying that. Yeah, completely, uh, Robin. I 100% agree. Look, globalization. Look, I'm, again, I I'm studied economics, and you know, we there there are benefits from globalization. There's no question. We've seen you know access to extraordinary goods. You know, we wouldn't have our iPhones and all those other technology, all those te tech, you know, technological advancements we've seen in the last 30 years. We wouldn't have those without you know the globalization, the chain, the the supply chains that have enabled uh, companies to be able to do things like that. But I think what happened, and I talk about this a lot in the book, in the chapter on big business in particular, these companies became, you know, the the after the, at the end of the Cold War. This is again goes back to the 1990s, the end of the Cold War, uh, you know, sort of, and and the emergence of China on the world stage, particularly as a major economic power, created these huge opportunities for businesses you know, for businesses around the world. And they pursued those those opportunities. They pursued the profit overseas. And in the process, and became many of them very successful. And by the way, also became very rich. The, the, the owners and the managers of those companies became very, became very rich. But of course, they left behind um, uh, many, many Americans at home, exactly as you say, where you are, um, uh, Robin, you know, huge deindustrialization, the hollowing out of American industries that we saw over that period from the 1990s and the 2000s in particular, as companies offshored, uh, as to give it its polite euphemism, offshored uh, production to lower wage, uh, lower wage economies. And as then, exactly as you say, also with immigration. And, and what happened, um, I think, Robin, is that this sort of creed of globalization, this idea that um, it wasn't just economic, it wasn't just, look, that we could create, create you know, tremendous, we could lower costs and create tremendous economic opportunities for ourselves, you know, by, by, by increasing, uh, uh, you know, it, it, by, by pursuing overseas markets. It was almost a sort of, it was also a philosophical belief, a kind of an ideological belief that actually, you know, we're all one world now. The idea, especially at the end of the Cold War, you know, the ideological divisions had fallen, the Soviet Union had gone away. We supposedly, ridiculously, in my view, kidded ourselves that China was going to become a democratic nation. Everything was going to, you know, we didn't need to worry anymore. You know, the great mistaken theory that democratic nations don't go to war with each other. So we could pull down not just economic barriers, we kind of pull down, you know, as you say, borders too. And we became, we, we create in, in the hands of this, as I say, this kind of, this, these elites who took over our institutions, this idea took hold that that borders didn't matter anymore. Borders were actually in some ways immoral. And that it was kind of, you know, everybody, yeah, anybody who wanted to cross a border should be allowed to, not only for economic reasons, but out of principle. And so, yeah, we 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 allowed mass immigration, uh, much of it in this country, particularly illegal. Um, we allowed these, um, you know, huge numbers of people to come here again with, you know, displacing some Americans in terms of jobs, but also changing the nature of the country. 
And I think that, again, created a mistrust both in the politicians, the leaders, the political leaders who created these, these institutions, but also, crucially, in the businesses that had pursued these economic opportunities, whether those economic opportunities, whether they be, you know, opening markets, opening factories in China, or, um, you know, bringing in, you know, benefiting from relatively cheap labor migrants here at home. And I think... Yeah, that led to a really significant growth in mistrust of of uh, of of business of business leaders, and that continues to this day. One area you bring up is is the news media, and um, this has bothered me for a long time now because I'm old school. I guess I I look hard for sources that just report the news. I don't like to see editorializing or opinion shaping within news stories, but it seems like we get that more and more, and. One of your former colleagues, Jerry Seib, I thought was one of the best columnists because I could never figure out what party, what angle he was coming from. Very even-handed. And uh, it's hard to find people like that. And it's very hard to find. Your your newspaper is is one exception, I will say, and I and, and I mean that. It's it's a place you can still go for hard news. Um it it bothers me on social media to see a lot of reporters reporting news, sharing articles that give away their what their views are. And you you address this in the book, and I think it's very important, um, long term in our country to get this fixed. But what when did this start? Where where we started really ha having a, a distrust of media in our news sources in the United States? I think there were several phases, uh, Robin. I think first of all, um, and I talk about this a bit in the book. First of all, it began. It really kind of began in the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, sort of that 20-year period when when journalism went from being uh, a job uh, that people did, a kind of a, a trade almost that, pe that people did. And it, but people, you didn't have to have a degree, you didn't have to be into a fancy college or, you know, an expensive education. You had to be smart and interested and tenacious. And you had to go out and try and find, you had to be interested above all else in first finding out what the story was. You go, you know, that's what newspapers and television in its early days used to be. People would just go out and find what the story was. Beginning in the sort of 60s and 70s, and then kind of turbocharged, I think, particularly by Watergate, uh, journalism became a profession, idea, you know, an idea that you you went to, you did go to an expensive university, and by the way, you probably went and got a master's degree too in journalism. And that kind of, that, so there was a demographic change. The people who went into journalism no longer thought it was good enough for them simply to tell people what happened. They wanted to tell people how to think. They were smarter than they were. They thought they were smarter than everybody else. And they thought it was their job to tell people how to think. So more and more opinionate, opinionated news reporting happened. More and more, became more and more about people telling people, um, you know, not telling people the facts, but telling people um, opinions and ideas and theories and things like that. So I think that was the first thing. Um, I think the second thing that came along, obviously, was digital media, which did change that, that, that um, particularly giving an opportunity for voices that had not really been previously represented. So, you know, we like to think, um, and again, I talk about this in the book, you know, people like to think of a sort of a golden age of American television, the 1970s and 80s with Walter Cronkite, you know, and and John Chancellor and people like these these, these figures, these who were supposedly the voices of God every night, every evening on your television screen. And that was never really true. They were they 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 were all pretty well. All of them were kind of liberal. Were liberal were were sort of were biased towards a, a liberal view of the world, as became very clear uh, when we heard what their views were. But they, you know, they at least strove to be objective. 
when more and more people, I think in the 90s, um, talk, TV, talk radio came along and then things like Fox News came along, people, those opportunities, people sought, sought alternative news, alternative sources of news because they couldn't trust, they decided because they, they couldn't trust the news anymore, the traditional news. They started to realize better than they had done before that the news wasn't telling wasn't telling it straight, that the news, whether it was the major news networks or the major newspapers like the New York Times or the Washington Post, journal thank you for saying so being an exception were offering a skewed version of the news and so they sought alternatives so they sought you know initially as i say fox news and then when digital media came along all kinds of alternatives like that so that was the second thing that i think contributed to the decline in in, in trust and then the third things really just went robin just completely kind of weird and haywire with donald trump i mean we had um an extraordinary period with in 2015 2016 when the media when the media kind of went into a sort of collective meltdown over trump uh it was partly you know they sup supposedly convinced themselves that he was a russian agent it was partly they just thought what he was saying about things like immigration were completely unacceptable and unsayable you know i'll never forget i remember reading a couple of days after the election in 2016 a very prominent journalist wrote i think it was the editor of the new yorker basically said we're in a state of emergency now. It's no the old rules no longer apply. We can't try and we're not going to tell the story from all sides. We're not going to say on the one hand this, on the other hand that. Donald Trump is a kind of you know is a 21st century version of Adolf Hitler. I literally had people say this to me in in as I was editor of the journal. Uh, Donald Trump is a kind of Adolf Hitler, and we've got to oppose him. We've got to. It's no longer just enough to tell the story or you know interpret the story. We've actually got to be actively opposing him. And that drove them mad, quite frankly. And it drove them, you know, as, as Donald Trump, you know, we can say what you like about Donald Trump. He has an extraordinary ability to send his, you know, to drive his enemy, you know, God, what's the world saying? You know, the gods wish to destroy, they first make mad. It's like who Donald Trump wishes to destroy. They make, and, and, and the media just went completely insane and decided that Donald Trump was this existential threat to American democracy and to decency and everything that America stands for. And they became passionately campaigning opposed to him this was then you know this was then amplified with the george floyd murder and the black lives matter riots that we had but so i think that's what so so it's been it's been going on this decline in trust in media has been going on in stages i think those are the three key moments and by the way now we're at a point robin where you know according to these gallup polls less than 20 percent of the american population of the of the american of american adults believe that they can trust what's in the news media back in the 1970s the immediate sort of post Watergate period that was about 70 percent so there's just been a complete collapse of trust in the media for reasons I think I've laid out and reasons that are completely understandable because the media just aren't trustworthy you're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR I'm your host Robin Johnson and my guest today is Jerry Baker who's a uh uh, former editor-in-chief for the uh, Wall Street Journal from 2013 to 2018. He's currently editor-at-large, uh, writes the free expression column, which I heartily recommend. It appears on Tuesdays. It was a really good one just yesterday, but I'm not going <laughs> to tell any more about it. Uh, he hosts a podcast by the same name. And he the, the, the book that he's written is called American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How We Can Rebuild Confidence. It's a very timely book. If you want to understand what's going on, and it, it really does a good job of breaking things down and explaining why we're in the position we're in. And Jerry actually offers some solutions, which I want to get to in a minute. But what's the big risk here of this lack of growing lack of trust in our institutions? What if we can't arrest this and start doing some different things? What what, what are the risks we face as a nation? 
I mean, put it bluntly, social disintegration. And, and I mean, it is a society can't exist if people don't trust its uh, the, the institutions, the leaders. Let me give you, you know, the perfect example, the extreme example of that, obviously, is, um, you know, the denial of the election results in 2020. Now, again, I'm, you know, I'm right for the journal editorial page and pretty conservative, probably in, in my outlook. Um, I think well, I also I'm willing to say and I think there were there were a lot of things about that election in 2020 that were. Uh, irregular, shall we say, and the the, the way in which the uh, early voting and mail-in voting was was allowed, the way all, all kinds of things w- went on that I think are not really should not have gone on. But the fact is that you know Donald Trump lost the election, claimed then that there was fraud in the election, specific fraud, tried to prove it and wasn't able to prove it uh, through you know many legal challenges. So what you had, but but you now have a situation where something like two thirds of Republican voters say they think the election was stolen. Now, by the way, and let me just also quickly say, just to be you know even-handed here, election denial wasn't invented in 2020 by Donald Trump. Um, 2000, when George W. Bush, we had that you know almost tied election against Al Gore, and the Supreme Court had to step in. After that election, many many Democrats, including Democratic leaders, said George W. Bush had been illegitimately was was an illegitimate president. He hadn't been properly elected. 2004, when he won again, you'll recall. I'm always I always remind people of this when they we talk about January the 6th and by the way January the 6th was a uniquely terrible event in American history and there's no defending it but it is worth remembering that there was a kind of there was a there was a precedent in minor key for that in 2004 when more than 100 democrats in the house refused to certify the results of it did not vote to certify the results of the 2004 election because there was a claim that um there'd been fraud in 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 Ohio um so we've had this tendency and I, again to be absolutely clear 2020 was the most extreme example of it but we've had this and hillary clinton said donald trump was not legitimately elected in 2016 we've had this tendency to delegitimize elections because people don't because people don't trust the system they don't trust the results of elections and so what does it mean to, to answer your question that means if people don't trust the outcome of election results if they think they won an election which they officially lost we don't really have a democracy anymore we're dangerously close to having a system where Basically, people don't accept that, you know, the whole the whole notion of a democracy relies on the willing consent of the minority. I when you know, we have an election, majority wins, the minority loses, the minority says, okay, don't like the result, but I'll accept it for four years. We get another chance in four years or two years or or six years or whatever it is. If you have a system where those where the minority says, uh-uh, sorry, I don't accept the result of this, you don't really have a democracy any longer. You don't have a system where you can have a stable, functioning democracy. So we have to restore trust. We have to restore trust in our government. We have to restore trust in the media that tells us about our government. We have to restore trust in our universities, our education system, where people are learning about, you know, government and society. Otherwise, uh, seriously, and again, I'm optimistic and will come to solutions but if it goes on like this it is very hard to see how um how the how american democracy as we've known it at least for let's say the last 150 years how that american democracy can continue and from a generation and i know a lot of our listeners are where uh, one party's administration lied about the vietnam war and then another party came in right after and lied about watergate but yep. we seem to survive that it seems like social media has plays a big big role in this and i'm not sure how we're going to be able to corral that but what are your thoughts i mean how big a role is social media playing in feeding this lack of trust or are they just feeding on something that our leaders have failed on and they're just they're just uh, kind of you know uh, just following up and reporting it it's a little bit of both that as, as we've discussed our leaders have failed us in so many ways political leaders business leaders media leaders 
um, you know, academic leaders have failed us so that's perfectly reasonable that people wouldn't trust that. But but there's also it's also true. What's look, I think the particularly pernicious aspect of social media is that it enables people essentially to shut themselves off from facts, let alone opinions or ideas or views, but from facts that don't suit their narrative. You know, again, there's that famous uh, line from Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the, the, the great New York senator, who used to say, you know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. What social media basically does, or what digital media, I should say, more generally does, uh, do is it enables people to have their own facts. They don't, if you know, if I, if I don't, if I don't want to hear stuff that doesn't suit me, I can go to a particular website where all I'll ever hear is that Joe Biden is a terrible human being and his son is corrupt and he's corrupt and the world and he needs to be impeached tomorrow. If I don't, if and if that's my view, that's all I'll ever hear. If I think Donald Trump is a terrible human being uh, who should never be allowed anywhere near the White House again, I can read, you know, a thousand news sources every day, which will just reinforce that view. And unfortunately, more and more of our media consumption is exactly of that sort people reading things only things they want they want to hear and that is a real problem because 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 again to be and this is why again it's i think it's one of the reasons why two-thirds of republicans think the 2020 election was stolen because they haven't really had that tested they haven't really had well they don't want to hear the results of the court cases the 58 court cases or whatever it was where the trump's uh trump's litigation was rejected so uh, this is this is the problem that people can just simply shut themselves off to anything that challenges their own views and their own assumptions. And that is not, this is not a way to, to learn. It's not a way to educate oneself, but also it's just not a way to develop any trust in anybody else. You only ever trust the people that you agree with. And if you only trust the people you agree with, then you don't really, you're not really trusting because you just happen to, you're only, you, you like what they're saying and therefore you trust it. Uh, and that is a problem. So we have to try that's not going to be easy, but we have to try to get back to a situation where people are exposed to facts and certainly facts and also ideas and views that challenge them. We won't have time to go through all the ways to rebuild trust that you recommend uh, for that. Folks, go buy the book. Uh, but let's focus on government since that seems to be the major focus here. What are some ways we can start to rebuild trust in our government? Well, so I think a number of things. I think we have to, we should tackle the problem of partisanship but that we have and there are ways in which we can do that I, I won't go into too much of the detail because this is a very familiar territory but there are we've become as everybody knows the house of representatives in particular we talk about the federal government here uh um the house of representatives in particular has become uh essentially um you know has become extremely partisan the the the, the political differences between the two parties have got wider and wider even as i don't think necessarily people in the country's views have got, have got further and further apart and that's all to do with things like redistricting and you know as everybody's the joke is you know no it's not longer voters voters don't choose their their congressmen congressmen choose their voters and so i think we have to we do have to look at some reforms for things like that one of the things i talk about in the book is one that one of the positive areas um in terms of trust that we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years is people have much more trust in local government in local in 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 all in all things that are local and closer to them, so they have more trust in their local congressmen than they have in Congress as a whole. They have more trust in local government than they have in federal government. They have much more trust in small businesses that they shop at every day than they do in big businesses and in big and remote distances. So I think one again, one thing I think we can do is we can bring, we need to try to bring 
um, institutions closer to the people. Um, and we need to, you know, we, 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 we need to, we, and we can do that by, you know, devolving power to some extent, I mean, restoring. Remember America, one of the great geniuses of America is that it is a devolved system. It's a federal system. Um, give, you know, we, we, we become sort of fixated on power at the center and, you know, all of our, so much of our time is consumed thinking about, you know, the, the presidency or the, or, or the Congress actually, we should spend a lot more time. We should and find ways to devolve more power to the states and and indeed to the localities. And I think that would help restore some trust too. Because the problem of bigness, of remoteness, of scale, uh, is just so big that I think people have you know people see they they see these institutions as just too um, too distant, too remote. Uh, they don't understand what's going on in them. They're not exposed to. They're, they're not. They're not. There's not enough transparency. They're not exposed to proper scrutiny. Whereas I think if we had, if we were able to bring, as I say, bring power, bring, um, bring authority back to closer to the people, I think we would develop more trust. Well, unfortunately, we've run out of time. I had several other questions, but we'll just have to uh, uh, maybe save those for a future visit. Uh, yeah, I'd love to. You do talk about other ways of closing the trust gap. We need to close four wide gulfs. I'll, I'll just say them real quick. Reduce yep. economic inequality, going small and local, which you mentioned, improving performance, and turning back the cultural revolution. Uh, folks, if you want to learn more about this, uh, again, I highly recommend this book. It's called American Breakdown, Why We No Longer Trust Our Leaders and Institutions and How can We Can Rebuild Confidence. My guest today has been the author. Jerry Baker, uh, who's former editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal. Jerry, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today. Robin, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed to your listeners. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.